Hello and welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast, the home of movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. My name is Chris, I'm your host, joined by my co-host extraordinaire, Andrew. How you doing? I'm doing well, thank you for asking. Of course. Good to be here. Always good to uh, be on the Cult Film Companion Podcast, talking movies that... uh, don't get enough recognition, so to speak, and today we have an all-time cult classic. Uh, this was actually one of the first movies recommended on our Facebook group page to be covered, and that is, of course, the 1984 directorial debut of Alex Cox, Repo Man. Woo! Now, I'm going to read directly from Edge City Productions' synopsis of Repo Man. And it reads as follows. Repo Man is an action-adventure comedy about an 18-year-old punk, in parentheses, hoodwinked into into working for a CD repossession company and thrust headlong into intrigue involving flying saucer cultists, fast cars, exotic women, Ruthless intelligence agents and a wayward nuclear scientist. Love it. Repo Man was written and directed by Alex Cox, as stated earlier in his directorial debut. The cinematography was done by Robbie Mueller. It was edited by Dennis Dolan. The music was done by Stephen Huffstetter and Umberto Larivia. And also features an incredible assortment of 80s punk bands. Mm-hmm. The movie was produced by Jonathan Wax and Peter McCarthy, and executive produced by Michael Nesmith of The Monkees. Mm-hmm. The movie stars Harry Dean Stanton as Bud, Emilio Estevez as Otto. Character actor extraordinaire Tracy Walter as Miller, Olivia Barash as Layla, Cy Richardson as Light, Susan Barnes as Agent Rogers, or Rogers, Fox Harris as J. Frank Parnell, Tom Finnegan plays Ali, Del Zamora plays Lagarto, Eddie Velas plays Napo, Xander Schloss plays Kevin. And we also have the notorious punk band, The Circle Jerks, as a nightclub band spoof, which is um, one of my favorite parts of the movies. <laughs> the budget for Repo Man was $1.5 million, and it would gross $3.7 million. It was released on March 2nd, 1984. Now, it should be noted that this movie was produced... So, Repo Man was produced under what is called a negative pickup deal. Mm. Which means that Michael Nesmith, as the executive producer, basically footed the bill for the movie. And then Universal had the option of purchasing it and reimbursing him and then releasing it if they liked it. Which they did. This movie came about because writer-director Alex Cox and fellow UCLA graduates Jonathan Wax and Peter McCarthy, the producers, were, you know, fresh out of college and wanted to do their first movie together. 
Alex Cox based this movie on his experience of working with the real repossession agent, Mark Lewis. Mark Lewis was an actual repo man, and Alex Cox shadowed him for a brief period of time to get some of the inspiration for the movie. The movie was a satire of the Reagan administration, consumerism, and the atomic age. Principal photography for the movie started in the summer of 1983 in Los Angeles. It was originally conceived as a road movie, but due to budgetary restraints, they tightened up the script to basically happen entirely in Los Angeles. The basis of this movie is... Well, this movie could be described any number of ways, but one of the most key elements of the movie is this Chevy Malibu that everybody wants to get their hands on. The opening scene of the movie, we are shown what turns out to be the uh, scientist driving the Chevy Malibu, warning a cop when he gets pulled over not to look into the trunk, and the cop is vaporized, left nothing but the boot smoking, and the whole story is based here on as multiple... Repossessors are trying to get their hands on the Chevy Malibu and also the government trying to get their hands on the Chevy Malibu. This movie was the first Alex Cox movie. He followed this up with Sid and Nancy and kind of fell kind of fell flat afterwards. Um, we'll get into that in a little bit, but Let's just talk about the general premise of Repo Man. And this was a movie that I probably seen about 15 years ago um, for the first time uncut. I remember vaguely seeing it on uh, cable TV, which a lot of people... This was one of those um, movies that showed up on a lot of basic cable on TNT, USA, TBS, kind of Friday night, Saturday night kind of movie that you would see. And, uh, yeah, so that's kind of where it developed its its cult following. Universal initially had a great deal of promise and interest in the movie, and it was going to get a, a, a pretty big release upon completion, but due to some turnover in the company, that didn't really happen, and it, it got a, a pretty limited release. It was only kind of available in the big cities on each coast, you know. It opened in New York City on the East Coast and L.A. on the West Coast and some of the other major cities, but it was not something that could have easily been seen. It's since developed a uh, very strong cult following, and I, I would say is easily Alex Cox's best movie. And we can we'll talk about some of the other movies that he did afterwards. But um, Andrew, yeah, it's it's interesting that it. It had a limited release, um, almost similar to what happened to Brazil at the same time. Uh, seems like there was kind of a, a shift in Hollywood as to what they wanted to uh, have on the mainstream consciousness. Anyway, with that being said, I, uh, I have a very um, special um, 
reaction to this movie. I'm intentionally unprepared for this, although I do have talking points, because um, I, f I think it's a gem. I wish I had seen it back when it was originally released or when it was on TV uh, during the mid-80s, uh, kind of like how I feel about The Warriors. I wish I had seen both of those movies back then. They they could have really served... Uh, they could have really served me in my cinematic psyche, basically, for lack of a better term. But there's something very... Th I, f I find this movie like a gem. It's kind of precious. And I almost... Um, it's almost like I I can't touch it. Like there's it's it, it feels too cool for me in a lot of ways, and it has it it has affected me in a way where I won't really fully understand it for maybe a long time. I will see it again at some point. Uh, but it has there's something about it that I that I can't even really define beyond its uh, genre bending and its themes there's something beyond it that i don't i can't fully grasp and i i think that this is this 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 is a sign of a very good movie where it kind of embarks you upon a journey where you don't fully uh get it maybe for quite a while you know maybe later in life you view it again and you get more out of it it's that type of thing and we we love movies like that uh, i used to live uh from movie to movie they i would start a journey if i if a movie really affected me it would embark me upon a journey within my own mind that i would kind of play out with myself uh for a period of time you know it's part of part of why i became an actor and eventually became a good actor because my uh, my desire to get in depth with certain projects, mostly theater, um, would would create personal journeys for me. And so movies did this for me for a long time as well. Uh, and then I kind of got away from all of that. But Repo Man has done that for me. It started something in me that um, is uh, kind of wild and interesting and I don't know, you know when I'm going to see it again, but I do carry it around with me. It is. It, it is like that and talking about a genre bending movie this is one of the um in the early 80s we were kind of talking about um punk kind of be slowly seeping into the mainstream and this is a very punk movie not only the soundtrack but the aesthetic the diy nature of the the movie itself mm -hmm. it, it's it's kind of fascinating to me that um Michael Nesmith, best known for the Monkees, you know, in the eighties, kind of reinvented himself as an independent movie producer. Did he do more? Did he produce other movies? He after did. This? He he's produced quite a uh, a handful of movies. I would say this is probably the most notable, and then this I would follow up to this would be. Tapeheads with John Cusack oh, right. and Tim Robbins, which is something that we'll eventually cover on the show. Tapeheads is a great kind of uh, spoof satire on music videos. We got the, uh, we won't get sidetracked too much on Tapeheads, but it's also a kind of a very punkish kind of movie, a very DIY, 
kind of just punk atmosphere. This movie is so... So the dude from The Monkees ended up going punk, basically, in cinema. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And he was, you know, also the most... Of, of, of The Monkees people, I, I would assume, if you, even if you're not familiar with The Monkees, you kind of have just a grasp of who The Monkees were. They were kind of created as a, a spoof of The Beatles, mm-hmm. and they were very, they had a TV show, and they were kind of... They were almost created the way a boy band was created in the yeah. 90s. They were kind of just put together like the spice girls exactly (laughs) you know a manager or producer kind of got a group of people together and and formed a group and that's kind of what happened with the monkeys but michael nesmith was the most proficient musician of the bunch he was a legit songwriter and i mean we could do a whole podcast talking about the monkeys but he you know one of the things that happened with the monkeys is that slowly but surely they started wanting to write and, and perform their own songs and not have the songwriters and no lip syncing and no playing air guitar they wanted to you know actually play their instruments but um michael nesmith mother is also famous for she created uh whiteout the liquid are you kidding me no <laughs> So, wow! I, I don't know She's if this is she. She was rolling in it then. Well, and that's, and that's kind of. There's kind of a joke. I'm not sure if it's true or not. That that the way that he was able because he didn't make a huge amount of money from the monkeys because there's so many different mouths to feed, so many different pocketbooks that money's going into. But uh, I guess he inherited quite a bit of money from his mother, which kind of gave him the opportunity to finance these movies because like i said this was a negative pickup which means that they met with universal universal was kind of like okay we kind of see where you're going here the script is kind of weird it's kind of wacky make the movie and we'll see type also, of thing but also very hesitant they're like so this is a first time screenwriter and but he and he's never directed so he wants to direct this was before uh you know someone you know you don't have that kind of clout or they they're they're not going to really take that chance um you know in the 90s i think there was a lot more open-mindedness when reservoir dogs hit big they're like first time screenwriter first time director knocks it out of the park with this indie gem like we'll we'll give they were uh, i think hollywood is a lot more open so in the early 80s for them to for universal to finance a punk rock kind of movie. They're like, so it's sci-fi, but it's also very comedic. It's also satirical. It's also very violent. Without the gore, well, without so much gore. Without so much gore, they're like, you know, again, this is kind of like the hallmark of a cult movie is something that I wouldn't want to have to market. Or something that I wouldn't want to have to, like, classify. Like, if this came into the video store, I'm like, well, what section of, like, do I put this in? Yeah. Do I put it in sci-fi? Do I put it in comedy? Yeah. I mean, it's obviously not a musical, but there's a lot of punk music yeah. in it. Yeah. So it's like, that's kind of like the hallmark of a cult movie. It's like, okay, it doesn't fit into any of these boxes that, right. we, that Hollywood has. And that's kind of really a Hollywood thing. They're like... Today, it's, like, huge. It's, like, superhero movie, reboot a horror movie from the 80s that was popular. Yeah. We own this intellectual property. 
let's adapt this cartoon. Oh, yeah. this TV show was popular t- two decades ago. So that's kind of the hallmark of a of a cult movie. And at some point, we we could just have a podcast of like what defines a cult movie. And I, it, you know, this is just kind of like. It's also one of those movies that for if you show it to someone that hasn't seen it before, like I, I loved watching this movie with you because I didn't I didn't realize until we watched it that you had never seen this before. Nope. And it, so, but you were kind of like familiar. It's one of those movies you kind of like hear about, mm-hmm. and and then there's so much quotable dialogue too that like you almost. Well, I I got together with a friend of my mine recently uh, who's older than I am, about ten years older than I am. And uh, I mentioned that we had, I just watched it for the podcast, and he immediately started uh, rattling off lines. He knew, like, line after line after line from it. And then when I was on YouTube uh, listening to the soundtrack, in the comments, it was one person after another, uh, you know, giving lines from the movie, their favorite lines from the movie. So the movie's packed with quotable lines. And... It's almost like you could, and, and it's interesting, this was one of the first, it wasn't the first, but was one of the first soundtracks that was a compilation of different bands. Usually a soundtrack would have been the musical cues from a movie, um, and not so much pre-existing songs put into movies. That was kind of, it was, that was kind of starting to happen in the 70s and, and into the 80s, and this was the first time that there was, um, it wasn't the first compilation, but I, I could probably safely say that this was the first time there was like a punk rock compilation soundtrack. Yeah, and and from what I understand from the commentary that we watched or some of the bonus features that we watched, the soundtrack, which, which happens, the soundtrack will be released before the movie is released. In this case, apparently the soundtrack was released and it was um, already a big hit. It was selling. And so that put pressure on Universal to release the movie. That seems to be the impression that I get. Because I, I you're going to have... I don't think that Universal realized that... And, and this is probably something... Well, not probably. Something that studio executives love to hear. We have a pre-existing audience. Yeah. We, do you know the, the, the punk rock kids that don't go to see your movies because they're lame and they're stupid? Yeah. You know what? They're going to shell out their money to go see this. Yeah. We've got a kick at, we've got a, if you didn't tell me, I mean, you could tell once he starts singing, but if you didn't tell me that the theme song was done by Iggy Pop, I would swear that it's the Dead Kennedys. <laughs> it's such a, like. I'm sure he wouldn't mind you saying that. No, I, I, yeah. it's very, it's a very Dead Kennedys-esque punk song that Iggy Pop sings, but this movie is, is top to bottom punk rock. You got bat, Black Flag. You got the suicidal tendencies. You got the Circle Jerks as a as this lame lounge band. Yeah, that he disses. That well, Emilio Estevez di- that auto disses. He kind of rolls his eye and goes, "I can't believe he used to like these guys." <laughs> yeah. And they're playing one of their they're playing one of their songs, but you know they're doing it up as like this really lame group. And um, just as quick side note about the Circle Jerks, this is very interesting. So Xander Schloss, who plays Otto's goofy friend, um, Kevin, who we meet Kevin, and he's singing the 7-Up song. 
And then he claims not to be singing the seven up song <laughs> immediately <laughs> after Emilio Estevez Otto asked him to, you know, stop singing. You go, I wasn't singing, man. Well, he's almost rapping it. He's not really singing. Yeah. It. So I wonder if that's what he's. So we kind of have like the goofy friend of Otto, played by Kevin, who, if you've never seen this movie, but you've seen Napoleon Dynamite, and then you watch this movie, you're going to be like. What is that Napoleon Dynamite? Mm-hmm. He looked like mm-hmm. apparently he was this character was the basis for Napoleon Dynamite. Mm-hmm. You he can looks tell. like the glasses, the way he looks, like yeah. his response. I mean, it was in my subconscious at least when I was watching it. I was like, this dude, like I I know this character. Yeah, <laughs> it's so bizarre. Um, so that's a little tidbit there. If you've never seen Repo Man, but you've seen Napoleon Dynamite, you you can already picture in your head what Kevin looks like because mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he's got he does his afro isn't as big as Napoleon's Dynamite, but he's got goofy hair, mm-hmm. goofy teeth, and bad bad skin, which is bad, which is kind of refreshing to yeah, see. Bad skin, yeah. and really ugly glasses. Um, yeah. So <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> so Xander Schloss, uh, who plays Kevin, the uh, the actor Xander Schloss, was a big fan of the Circle Jerks, and um, he wasn't in the scene with them, but he was on set when they were filming, and he went up to them uh, and complimented them because he he it was he liked them, and they they kind of like rolled their eyes and said, "Yeah, whatever, man." <laughs> uh, cut to a couple of years later, Xander Sloss has been the Circle Jerks bassist for pr- going on 20 plus years on and off. Oh, that's right. So, oh wow. We I had mean, this, that's that's this, great. This, that's really cool to hear. Isn't that like yeah, just like I bonkers? Love I love but I love it. Yeah. And that's just like like this movie is just kind of like the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. Cuz like even if you've never seen Repo Man, there would be no, no there wouldn't be Napoleon Dynamite without Repo Man, yeah. which is just a bizarre <laughs> transition to make, but it's true because. But this movie, like I said, you can't define it, and it's one of those movies where you watch with someone, because like, if someone asked you to describe this movie, like what do you say? It's, like it's a search for a Chevy Malibu, but it, but it's not. It's, you've got consumer satire going on with the fact that everything in this universe, due to uh, budgetary constraints, they didn't get any. The only sponsored product in this movie is the Christmas tree air fresheners that hang right. from, every, from every car. Right, the company that made those actually sponsored the movie. So, other than that, everything that exists in this universe... Comes out a white label, yeah, a, a blue or black stripe, and then blue or black lettering that just simply states whatever this product is: mm-hmm. beer, drink, and then my favorite is just the can that says food. Yeah, <laughs> which God knows what it is. It looks like it dog food. It looks like the human equivalent <laughs> of dog food. So we've got this consumer, and we were saying that. I remember during I re, I remember generic products. I do remember this. And didn't you say that they've discontinued it? Discontinued it, that they don't do that anymore. I don't I, see that on the shelves anymore. Not at price right be, at it least. It used to be a big thing in the eighties. I remember um, mm-hmm. a lot of places just because you know name brand stuff. And nowadays, instead of being this generic thing, you kind of see it, and they kind of 
pass it off as something else. Like, I think I have... I don't have Honey Nut Cheerios. I think I have, like, Honey Nut Crispy Oats. Oh, sure. Or something like that. Yeah. And the, but pack, but the, the packaging looks like Cheerios. Yeah, right. Um, they but, don't even bother... Well, they, they do bother trying to do something with oh, it yeah. now. Oh, yeah. But before, right, it would just be, you know, block lettering. Block lettering. On a white label. White label. Mm-hmm. It's cheap. It's cheap to produce. And, you know, that it, it was kind of... Uh, Kind of a nod to the consumerism of the 80s. Also, Alex Cox was um, very paranoid. He was big into conspiracies, which which um, shows in this movie uh, about UFOs and aliens. And he was also very con- concerned, you know, because we were talking uh, early 80s. Cold War was still going on, right? Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of uh, worry about you know, nuclear bombs and weapons right. and right. all that plays into this and kind of like the mass hysteria. And that, but we get interesting comments. It's almost like people, the outsiders looking in on this, this bizarre just happenings of the world. Uh, we get the, um, Tracy Walters characters, my favorite character in this movie. And he's got these very bizarre Zen kind of quotes and he talks about how everyone's into weirdness and the Bermuda Triangle now and how everyone's, you know, people go, you know, thousands of people go missing in South America every year. And he has these very interesting theories about how UFOs are time machines and how everyone from the past was from the future, but they went back in time to be in the past. And yeah, it it adds, it adds a, it certainly adds a, another level to the to the film, to the movie. And he's a he, the way he pontificates is um, e- easy to kind of get lulled into. Yeah, he waxes poetic. Yeah, he does. <laughs> like no one's business. Yeah. All while kind of like burning crap that yeah. he finds in a repossessed car <laughs> in a barrel. Yeah, instead of being like some like weird zen guy Guru. in a yeah in a park with like people bow down before him while he pontificates and preaches no, his theories he's an urban creature he's sta- just like all of them he's standing in front of a bonfire yeah. you know, throwing in sombreros yeah and right whatever I guess from a repoed car yeah whatever crap yeah. that just came in from the repo car yeah. so there's so much going on in this movie yeah so much detail so much detail. Yeah, he talks about you know he talks about the, you know, you know some some someone will mention a plate of shrimp or mention shrimp and then someone else will mention plate and then you'll see the two of them together, and indeed in the movie later on you do see a poster for a plate of shrimp you know after he talks about it like at a diner, uh, so what you know what gets started comes back around in this movie, everything comes back around mm-hmm. um, this movie. It opens up all these different subplots throughout about um, we have a competing uh, repo company, the Rodriguez brothers, who are also uh, repossessors of cars. Um, they be it, What you think was just going to be kind of a side plot or side characters, they come wrapped into the, the, the ending and helping yep. Otto escape from the police. Yep, and they turn out to actually be helpful, don't they? Yeah, and they're not helpful at all. They're ad- the adversaries throughout the whole movie. They are uh, almost threateningly so. One of them does get uh, annihilated by opening the trunk of the Malibu Chevy, I believe. 
No, that's one of Otto's punk friends. Oh, sorry. Okay, gotcha. This, this movie's full of yep. just th- yeah different so we, characters. Well, going then we on. have we we have the Repo people. We have Otto and his punk friends. We have the Rodriguez brothers. We have Layla, Otto's love interest, who works for UFO, the United Fruit. <laughs> Which I didn't get. I didn't get that until I talked to my friend who quoted the movie. He was the one who's like, yeah, that stands for a UFO. Don't you get it? Oh. <laughs> Which is... <laughs> but I was laughing my yeah. ass off yeah. originally, you know. I thought that was just You're a funny just... name to begin with. It's funny. He's he's giving her a ride back to work. And he pulls up to the building. He looks over, and there it is in big letters. <laughs> United Fruitcake Outlet. <laughs> And she has this picture that she claims are you uh, are aliens that's going to end up on the cover of the newspaper in the next two days, and sure enough, this picture ends up on the newspaper. It's and this, this picture and the picture is is actually condoms filled with liquid or something. And I saw that's what I thought when I first see, saw the picture. I was like, wait a minute, those are condoms filled with water. Yeah, you know, and and so I was I was gratified to. Find out that that was actually the case. So this this is this movie was made for a very modest budget, but for the budget that it had, with the one exception which we'll get into the um, agent, one of the the female agent who has a fake hand that looks incredibly fake. Yeah, it the almost, fake looks fake. It looks too fake because this movie otherwise looks really really good considering Des- despite 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 the fact that elements of it look like an, a doctor who episode actually because elements of it look look like a doctor who episode and when it r- rains hail even that you can tell that they you know created that themselves they're just dropping a, yeah, a yeah. trays of ice cubes and you know what you can laugh at it because we're all in on the joke actually right. basically yeah. everybody you know so it and it 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 enhances the whole experience for me. I'd rather see it done this way. We've talked about CGI right, yeah. before on other podcasts and our disdain for it. Uh, it's much more rewarding to see minds creatively trying to solve an issue like, you know, a, a, a special effects issue. But it, despite that, you still have, like, there is a car chase scene in this abandoned L.A. reservoir between the Rodriguez brothers. Right. And, in the same looked, same reservoir they used in Greece, by the way, and yeah. Terminator Two, and Terminator Two, the, the right, famous right. the you dry know. riverbed in LA, right? Well, but, maybe one of them, but yeah, it looks amazing. The car chase scene is awesome. It's it's, it's really well done. Would you ever think of this was handled by? Admittedly, this Alex Cox asked for his first choice as director of photography. Robert Mueller was a very established DP at the time. Okay, but I mean. You got to give credit to Alex Cox too, but some of these scenes, they, they look like yeah. this is a polished director that, yes. know, that knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the vision is there, and then the the enthusiasm to pull it off was there. I think this is one of those movies where that's the case. Like it's really like the vision and the enthusiasm behind the vision to to once again pull it off, and they do. Yeah, right. and, and it's exciting as a viewer. It Whether is. you know that or not, you still get that viscerally from watching it. So this was not an easy production either because everyone... Alex Cox was a first-time writer-director. The producers were fresh out of UC, UCLA. Um, 
Michael Nesmith. I mean, this was his first time. No, I th- I believe he he had started uh, Edge City Productions had done a couple movies before this. Okay. Uh, but like I said, he was the one that went to Universal and proposed this. But Universal was again very hesitant. We got so we got first time producers, first time director. How did Michael Nesmith and Alex Cox meet to discuss this? Do you know? How did they cross paths? I'm uh, you know that I'm actually not sure about, and okay. I believe that it was actually brought up in an interview. I should have made a note about it about how they they kind of came up. Came across each other. I think that Nesmith was looking. He was kind of looking to be kind of like a punk rock independent Roger Corman in the eighties. So he okay. was kind of looking for for fresh faces. The way Roger Corman. Yeah. I mean, say what you want about Roger Corman, but some of the most noteworthy directors that we we have still working today got their start doing Roger Corman movies. Okay. Francis Ford Coppola, Ron Howard, oh, right. Oliver Stone, a lot of these people, uh, Joe Dante, uh, uh, James Cameron, okay. all got their start wow. doing Roger Corman movies. Wow. So Michael Nesmith was kind of look, he was looking for fresh faces, new talent. And I think that what they did, they had a very interesting way of proposing this movie is that they had, they had a script. Uh, again, it was re- originally conceived as a road movie, but... They also kind of had these comics, these hand-drawn comics, and I showed you some of it. You could see some of the hand-drawn comics yeah. in the booklet that uh, comes in this beautiful Criterion uh, collection. It's awesome. They had, um, so they, they had visuals already established. So the, it wasn't just kind of like passing a script to someone and they might thumb through it. They they had visuals. It was almost like, like a, a graphic, graphic novel. novel. Yeah, sure. So they, I think that's kind of how the the enthusiasm got that they're like, okay, I mean, it's one thing to read these words on the page, but we could see th- there's already a lot of thought going into this already behind behind these words. There's already visual imagery going on. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't an easy production, though, because Universal, you know, like I said, this was a negative pickup deal. So Michael Nesmith had to foot the bill for everything. But they were lucky to some of the people that they they cast. um, But he had some issues. We'll talk about some of the issues he had with um, Harry Stanton. But 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 just hold on a minute. So but they they basically were left alone to make the movie. It's not like Universal had their guys come in and check up nope. on, on things on the nope. set during production. Not at all. So there's a huge amount of freedom in right. that. Yeah. Which is why I think this movie works so well and some of the future Alex Cox projects didn't work out so well. You think they might have been more uh, heavily monitored? They were. Okay. They they very much were. Okay. And so he did Repo Man, and then he came out, uh, he followed this up with another punk rock movie, Sid and Nancy, which we're going to be covering on the show. After that, though, he he directed and wrote some some movies that absolutely bombed. A movie called Straight to Hell Returns was kind of... Which sounds like a sequel. It does. Uh, was kind of the, the nail in the coffin for him. 
after Repo Man and after Sid and Nancy, he was offered big time gigs directing RoboCop, which would go to Paul Verhoeven, and The Running Man, the the Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle. I, I don't know who directed that, but can you imagine re, uh, uh, RoboCop directed by Alex Cox? No, I can't. Because I I I don't know. Actually, I don't I don't think I've seen RoboCop, although I know it's worth seeing. At some point, even if we don't cover it for the show, I'll have to show. I I I own RoboCop because I I love it as a, a very. The, and that put Verhoeven on the map. Yeah, that was Verhoeven's big um, trend um, from Dutch cinema into to a, yeah, American. To American. While I can see aspects of RoboCop being handled by Alex Cox, there's a lot of political and consumer satire in RoboCop. Well, a lot of people. I mean, is does it is it aligned with Repo Man? It is. Well, then it's, it's a, that's where he would excel. But thinking about the action sequences in RoboCop and thinking about what Paul Verhoeven has done overall, I, I'm not sure that Alex Cox is one for an action movie. Okay. Uh, there's some action in Repo Man. There's some very engaging scenes, but he deals in like, he works well with kind of like quirky characters. Um, interesting dialogue. Yeah. Um, some outlandish set pieces. I'm thinking about some of the set pieces in Sid and Nancy, like the dream sequence where Sid's singing My Way on this big, like, stage. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of... Alex Cox excels at stuff like that. Okay. I, I mean, the whole the whole ending of Repo Man is a set piece. An excellent set piece. It is. And one that you don't see coming. No. I love it. I love movies where I don't know what's going to happen next. And, and this, this is, I, and I think that's kind of like a cliche phrase that gets thrown around. Like, oh, you'll never see what, what this... Oh, you know. what's going to happen. Yeah, I know. I know, I know. Yeah, but this but, is, but that's but, the case with this. I mean, oh, I was I'm, really able to relax into it. I was really able to relax into it and find some comfort in it that was uh, profound. I'm sorry, I just need to say that. <laughs> and I've said profound in the past with our podcast with certain movies, but I was there was something there was something about this movie that put me at peace. I don't know how to explain it. It's kind of like it. it for certain i guess film nerds or film fans this is kind of it's this is kind of like a comfort food this well movie, i mean but i don't even consider it like okay sure 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 but i but there's or maybe it's there's more it's deeper i and i'm i'm not i'm not going to be able to put my finger on okay. it for this podcast i'm just not <laughs> i will, probably won't be able to for 10 years from now i'll be able to or something like that but there's something i mean comfort comfort food films are fun but um, with this, it, there's, it, it, in addition to putting me at peace, it made me long. There's a longing or a yearning that was that's underneath it that I feel like everyone is in the movie is collectively headed towards. I I got a better analogy yeah, than go comfort ahead. food. Please, a five course meal. Sure, but even An that, appetizer but even leading that. up until the main course. Kind of, this movie, but I mean, even that. But I mean, the movie is—it's on the surface. It's almost like a TV dinner. 
You know, like <laughs> seriously, it does. Yes, yeah. I like could you see. could sit down with a TV dinner and and you know enjoy Repo Man and and be a part of Repo Man by and get your nourishment, yeah, and be kind of satisfied and be like, yeah, this is one of those movies that you could take at face value and you could look at the pretty pictures and you could hear some of the quotable dialogue and you could be like, oh wow, that's pretty cool, like that. Oh, he just said that. Like, let's go do some crimes, just like random. But well, like, like each... still, what are they, and what are they what are they going to do when they're going to do some crimes? What did they say? Uh, we're, let's steal uh, some sushi. We're gonna no, we're gonna go eat sushi and not pay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <Ooh>. right. <laughs> this movie. It's... I mean, that's hilarious. That's hilarious. These these like bad bad you know these badass dudes saying shit like that. It's almost kind of like. One of these, and one of them's one of them's puzzle lady. boxes, because it almost seems that like it goes scene to scene, and you, there's almost not at times there doesn't seem to be a narrative structure. It almost seems to be random scenes, right? But then all, but it's kind of like putting the pieces of a puzzle together, because yes. it all comes together. Yes, but like there you, are, yeah. it, it does jump from like you're like all of a sudden it's just a random scene of. Otto and one of the repo guys getting into it. They're trying to repo a girl, and they throw they throw a dead rat into her car, and he gets oh, maced. It's right. so yeah, yeah, yeah. it's almost yeah. it's almost it's like chaos because yeah. it almost seems like there's no. You're like, is this? It's kind of like okay, is this going somewhere? Because right. I'm invested, but I'm not sure. Like, is any of this gonna pay off? But I was able. You know what? That thought didn't even enter my mind though, because I was enjoying each little vignette so much, each little scene. And I told you as we were watching it, and I just told you before we recorded, like so many scenes of characters driving around at night, just shooting the shit. I love it. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what I want my life to be like. To you know, so it's like I just soaked it all up. I. In the moment, you know, not really worried about where it's going. Um, yeah. yeah. And so this movie is a quick, and I, and I don't I don't mean that as an insult. This movie flies by. It does. It's an All hour and a half. At the end. Yeah. But for, for a movie that's only an hour and a half, like, there is so much packed into this. Yeah. There is nothing, like, we watched some of the scenes that they took out. Some of the scenes, I could see why they did. There, there's... One repo scene that doesn't really lead to anything about them joking, the the guy, the shaving, yeah, the guy he, who's shaving, who, who's half shaved and yeah. he comes out. And that, he's, that turns up in the TV version. Yeah, yeah. And there's a scene where they so, like they the Warriors. Smash. There's a whole different version. Yeah, like a TV version. Well, the TV the TV version is um. So Alex Cox was one of the first directors, I guess. Uh, this this is what I read. It was was one of the first directors to actually be involved into in the TV version of this movie. He kind of wrote some of the silly dialogue that was dubbed in. Every time that there's a motherfucker in in this movie, and there's quite a few, it's Melon Farmer. <laughs> Every time there's a there's a fuck you, it's a it's a. Or, well, they or, say flip you a lot. Flip you, yeah. flip this, which isn't so quirky. But I mean, there is a lot of uh, funny stuff that they. Dub in instead of the cussing, which is which is you know prevalent throughout the whole movie. Yeah, and it, it leads, and I actually think that if my memory is correct, that I probably saw the TV version of this first. Okay, um, because I, I I don't think that this was one of those movies that came out because it came out in the the early eighties was a cult favorite, but 
when home video really exploded with DVDs and Blu-rays now, I, I think it took a while for this to kind of... It didn't, it didn't, it didn't become a, a cult hit on VHS? I'm thinking that it did. Oh, yeah. yeah no, I'm sure. sure. But, sure. I mean, some of the stories, like, I could tell you the mom and pop store that uh, that I managed for a while is uh, the movie store. We didn't have the, we didn't have this movie. You didn't? No. Okay. Unfortunately, this would probably be one of the movies that my uh, the owner would have sold off. Uh, what? He, yeah, he was weird. Uh, we didn't have a big like. Unfortunately, we didn't have a big cult movie section. We, yeah. We'd have some like sprinkled here and there. Like I did in my video store in New York in the 90s, in the 90s. And I don't remember where Repo Man was, but I bet it was in the cult section. Sure. Yeah. And and this would probably be the kind of movie that there would be one copy at Blockbuster and it would be worn out because yeah. like the same couple people would be the ones renting yeah. renting Repo Man. They wouldn't have you know a bunch of copies of it lying around. But it's since, I mean... And I had this disagreement with with someone. Someone claimed that this was, it was designed to be a cult movie. Oh, and you, I, could, you and, just you won't let that go. Well, here we go. You can't make a cult movie. No, you can't with an intention to have it be a cult movie. No, I don't think that. I don't think. I don't think that that's necessarily the. See, and I'm trying to think of, argue. Movies that could argue that. You don't think this was made to be a cult movie? No, from all from all, it was meant to be a mainstream. It was meant to be mainstream. Uh, Alex, these guys wanted to make a name for themselves. They were trying to get their foot in the door of Hollywood. Okay, they weren't trying to make a cult movie. They were making a movie that they kind of, the movie that they were living. They were they were all in their early mid twenties. Alex Cox was big into the punk scene at the time. He was. Yeah. He was a, a, a British transplant here in, in L.A. Yeah, he's a British director. That's right. Yep. Um, which, I mean... I remember his accent. Yeah. Because in, out- in the bonus features, not the outtakes, but the bonus... Well, he shows him outtakes. He shows outtakes to the real inventor of the neutron bomb, right? <laughs> yes, yes. And... Which cracks me up. Yes. And, but he was, you know, he wasn't trying to make a cult movie. He was just trying to make a movie. And that's why I just, I, 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 my argument is always going to be, if you're trying to make a cult movie, you're going to fail spectacularly. All right. Well, I I, I I can't, at some point I'll come up with something where I can argue that, but I don't have it yet. I see this movie as just a perfect storm of being allowed such creative freedom because they didn't have people from Universal saying, you can't do this. You want to use a group called the Circle Jerks in your movie? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> like, you want to have... Your, your, the conclusion of this movie is it turns out that this car actually is a neutron bomb. Not only that, but the car is a UFO and possibly a time machine. <laughs> like, that's why this movie, and, I could say... And I thought through the whole thing that there were dead aliens in the trunk. Well... I thought that's where the radiation was coming from. I mean, everything else has come to pass that it is true that there is a neutron bomb in this car. Uh, the radiation eventually does kill the the, the scientist. Yeah. Uh, 
maybe there are aliens in the trunk. I, I mean, this. Yeah, you're right. I know. You don't know the, the things they keep from the information that they withhold uh, is a big part of this movie. Right. The stuff that they don't say the, so is a let's, big part of it. There are a couple alternate endings to this movie. The ending to this is very ambiguous. As it's to, awesome. <laughs> I loved the, it. The ending of the movie is Otto and um, Miller yeah. are the only one. So by the end of this movie, the Chevy Malibu is glowing <laughs> like it's radioactive right. at this point. No one can get close to it. They get zapped. No, they get All zapped. All the hazmat people. The hazmat people get zapped. Uh, one of them catches on fire. It sets a Bible on fire. Yeah. And eventually Miller and Otto are the only ones allowed in the car. The car levitates into into the air, into the and, night. And then zips off. And then zips. Like, like a UFO. All over <laughs> Los Angeles. But and then, uh, of course, Otto says one of his famous lines, like, wow, man, man this, this is, is intense. intense. <laughs> and then Miller responds, Repo Man's life is always intense. <laughs> and we'll get and it. At, to- and at the, in earlier, you sent me that gif where Bud is saying to Otto, like, uh, the life of a Repo Man is basically one tense situation after another. Right. So we've got the word tense in there. Yeah, we... And then intense we, later. There's, a, yeah, there's so much quotable dialogue in here. Yeah. Um, yeah. We have the code of the Repo Man. A Repo Man we, should not wantfully or willingly destroy the possessions of, of someone, and we see this code violated by, every, yeah, <laughs> by everyone else. Right, right. I mean, you know... I don't. I don't care about the morals of the characters in this no, movie. That's not. But, but there, there have been others that have, you know, commented on it. This is a. They have no morals. They have no ethics no. whatsoever. If that's going to bother you, don't watch this movie. Whatever. You know. Yeah. Where I took it at face value from the beginning. Well, we have Otto, and it's such a, such a generic name. It's. Well, it, you were saying it's spelled the same backwards, O T T O. Yeah. And of course, it it sound, sounds like A U T O as well. Yeah. So. And there's a joke about him being auto parts. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> but uh, Alex Cox describes him as basically an aimless punk with no personality, no identity. Because he and ba- you see that in Otto. You do see that. He, he transforms himself over and over he's, again. He's he's got he's got certain fundamentals that may be punk, but otherwise he's selling out. Oh, he big big time. He flips. He yeah, on like, a dime he'll flip. He'll change his outfit. He'll be a businessman. Oh yeah, get rid of his earring. Yeah, his crucifix earring. Say right. He, yeah, he, he's very. He, but he, he doesn't even have like a very punk haircut to. To no. begin with, no. Uh, I guess he's kind of a. I would guess what the punks would call a poser. Yeah, he, you know. Yeah. He's although I mean he's got his friends and they do their Fight Club thing together, so he's he's in it with them. Right. But yeah, yeah. But he he's, could, he could be labeled a poser easily. But he quickly he he quickly conforms into the the Repo Man lifestyle once yeah. he finds out money. What. Well, because his initial response to being a repo man is to just dump a beer on the floor. Yeah. But once he find, once he starts getting some money, he, he gets the attention of a girl, he quickly like buys into this repo man lifestyle. He certainly does. He certainly does. And I want to I want to mention really quick one example of just the offbeat dialogue in this and the offbeat moments in this is when he pours a a beer on the floor. 
I'm assuming the carpet of the repo office. And, uh, and Bud is like, well, usually when someone pulls a stunt like that, I want to punch him in the face. But, and then he turns to his coworker and says, but, and they both chime in, but you're all all right. right. I mean, where did that come from? Right. I love it. Yeah. You know, at one point, I had an ambition <laughs> to make a sci-fi, an apocalyptic sci-fi musical. Okay, of course it never happened. But I, when I did write it, I wanted it to be that kind of offbeat, where you couldn't really, you know, it was a comedy. It was a comedy at one moment, and then dramatic at another moment. I love that. I love yeah. it when it switches around like that. There are other movies that do that really well. Um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but there are science fiction, especially maybe, maybe Mars attacks, maybe, maybe, but that's a whole different ball game. That's a big budget, uh, sci-fi action flick. Uh, but in this, I mean, you just, I love that certain moments will take you out of it. You know, it's like, Oh, ha! they, they actually did that, you know, and then you're back into it again. Right. Yeah. We, I mean, for the most part, this movie is very, very funny. But it there is. are some like really, really like crazy stuff happens. Even the stuff that's played kind of like serious, it's still very, very funny. Mm-hmm. We have the 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 parents of Otto's parents, pretty much dead to the world, addicted to television, addicted so, to their televangelists that they're watching, who they've given all their money to, they, as well. right? <laughs> and the money, the money that the father promised Otto as well, right? Yeah. Which which leads him to being all right. Dad gave away all my money to a televangelist. Might as well become a repo man. Right. And then we have um, then we're just kind of like off to the races. We have these great scenes with Otto. Uh, we have these great scenes between Emilio Estevez and Harry Dean Stanton talking about the repo code or going to repo jobs, talking about doing speed, talk about um or actually doing speed. Yeah. Talking about needing to get a drink and buying like a six pack of drink. <laughs> um, there's a, and there's a philosophy. It's almost like every character has their own personal philosophy. Right. Uh, I think Harry Dean Stanton's character thinks like being a repo man is the coolest thing in the world. Yeah. He kind of sees himself as kind of because he says like you should dress like a cop so people think you're always packing yeah. and, and they'll take you more seriously. And then we have someone like Light who uh who who does pack a gun but we find out that the the gun's got nothing but blanks in it. <laughs> That's a great scene too. Just hauls it out and starts shooting at the house right. that they're repoing, you know, because shots are coming out of the house, I guess. So yes, he just yeah. comes right out and he's got a gun all of a sudden. He's like blasting them to the house. Yeah. And he's telling Otto, who's like, what are you doing? Telling get Otto in the to car, get, get back into the repoed car and drive the repoed car away. Right. Come on. We got a gig here to do. So we, ha- we have all these repo men, but they, they all have their different codes. We yeah. have, we have, uh, Miller, who actually is, I would say, is not a repo man. He's just kind of like the guy that inventories the cars that yeah. end up in the lot. We have Light, who kind of is just kind of like of like the coolest black guy, badass. Like, just yeah, like, I think there's a whole. I think there's th- that's the only like non-punk 
song on the soundtrack is the one that he oh, plays in the yeah, car yeah, when yeah, they're yeah. driving around yeah. talking shooting the shit and he's talking that's more of kind of like a a barry white almost type yeah of, it's like, know, like a track. motown like yeah. a lost motown band and he was talking about like yeah they wanted me to manage them but i said that. so it's like that's nothing nothing for any self-respecting man to be is like a manager of a a rock group. Ah, uh, he says that. Yeah. <laughs> so we have all these characters with all these different uh, the codes. Views on life and codes. Yeah, absolutely. And then we have Layla, who's part of the United Fruitcake outlet, who's convinced that this, this Chevy Malibu has aliens in the trunk. And she's right. That's the punchline. She's right. He does see that picture in the papers after, you know, seeing, after she shows him the picture. And very oddly... The United Fruitcake Outlet is working with the government. You would think that these two things would be at opposition. Uh, Wouldn't you? No. No? Not necessarily. No. Okay. Maybe. Oh, I that, mean, not, not from what I know. Okay. And and, and I think but, that kind of... But possibly. You could be right. I, you know, but I think as Alex Cox says, you know, being big into conspiracies, he, I guess he would take the, the idea that, yes, these people that do believe in aliens and UFOs would uh, they would be working with the government? They might if appear... something legit pops up like that picture. All of a sudden, you got the government involved. Right? Yeah, yeah. Because you almost because at first she's very she she doesn't she's very scared of these government agents. The first time that she meets Otto, she, she they're driving and she looks Hide over. Me. Yeah, mm-hmm. and she she's in the passenger seat and she just slides down to the floor. floor right? Because uh-huh. you you look over and you got these two men with a uh, you know. Earpieces, black suits, and mirrored sunglasses. You know, so the men obvious. in black. It's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> you got the men in black there, but you know, but it turns out that she's working with the government agency and yeah. she actually ends up torturing Otto at one point. That's right. It's, like I said, for a 90 minute movie, there's so much going on. Yeah. The, the, you've got enough plots here for like three or four movies. Yeah. Which is why I think this movie works so well. It's like, it's almost, it's something that I would say is kind of like, it's a perfect storm. It's kind of like, to me, to me, it's a perfect movie that I, I've watched and rewatched many, many times just because it's, there's so much going on, but it's just so fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, and as a punk rock fan, like, Mm-hmm. The soundtrack to me is just kick ass mm-hmm. because not only like do you got these punk sounds, but the actual musical score itself is is filled with such interesting musical choices. It is. It is throughout, and and the original instrumental track. I'm pretty sure it's original. That the what's the what's the band on the soundtrack? They have three tracks, and they sing they sing in Espanol. The Lubs. The Tugs? The L- Lobos? The Lubs? Okay. I think it's the Lugs. They, they're they responsible for the instrumental track at the end when the car is flying. Uh, and it's I believe it's an original track written for the movie. And it's and it's awesome. It's great. It's perfect. This movie is also... So the the ending that we described is, is very ambiguous as to what happens to most of the characters. Actually, all the characters. We're not really sure what happens to anyone. Um... But and I don't even. It doesn't even seem to matter. No, no. I mean the you know. Uh, so some of the alternate endings. Uh, one of which uh, universal universal put the kibosh on 
the nuclear explosion that wipes out basically the world. It starts in L.A. and basically was going to show the entire world being um, annihilated. <laughs> I kind of love that. Uh, that was the original <laughs> ending to the movie, and Universal put the kibosh on that. One of the other alternate endings was Otto going to Central America to becoming... Uh, a member of a, a refugees government of rebel guerrilla group. Uh, there's hints of it. There's one scene with the Rodriguez brothers where we see their apartment and there's boxes of machine guns everywhere. <laughs> and that's the only inkling of this kind of like Central America uh, through line. Ending. Yeah. Yeah. That was the only hint of that. That was one of the alternate endings. And then a bizarre one was going to be that Muhammad Ali and three wise men were going to be coming off of a government helicopter and Muhammad Ali was going to approach the Chevy Malibu, but even the, you know, the greatest boxer in the history of the world wasn't allowed into the Chevy Malibu. And and this is because Alex Cox and Muhammad Ali crossed paths or he knew that Muhammad I think they met at a party, I think. That sounds about right. Yeah, and so he wrote he wrote he he approached Muhammad Ali with this idea, and Muhammad Ali respectfully declined. <laughs> I think that's all for them. Yeah, I, I do too. I, I do I, too. I think it, it would have been too much of a sight gag, perhaps. Yeah, you know. I mean, for a movie that like a lot of these scenes kind of come out of nowhere, that's kind of a little too much coming out of nowhere. Yeah, that's a little for gratuitous reasons, perhaps. A little too. I think that would have. L- lean too heavily on the weird for the sake of weird mm-hmm. factor. Mm-hmm. I think I mean you got I mean it's stunt casting. It is. Yeah. Um speaking of stunt casting, we do have a a a, a voiceless cameo from Jimmy Buffett as one of the men in blacks who's so not punk. No, he's not. <laughs> uh but yeah, that came about because Michael Nesmith was talking with Jimmy Buffett at the time because they were trying to turn Margaritaville into a movie. Oh, dear. That's right. Which thankfully never happened. But we do have Jimmy Buffett in, in one of the scenes of this movie as a um, as a, a voiceless men in black. Uh, it's actually the scene where they're torching the scientist after he's dead. They torch his body. He's one of the, the men in black taking pictures. Yeah. Um, another. Uh, speaking of the casting, we'll talk... Um, We'll talk a little bit about the difficulty that Alex Cox had with Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah. But an interesting story behind that is um, Alex Cox wanted Harry Dean Stanton for the role and contacted his agent. Now, this agent said, no, you don't want Harry Dean Stanton. (laughs) You want... Now, talk about not being punk rock. Well... Maybe. Maybe that's a harsh judgment. You don't want Harry Dean Stanton in your movie. You want Mick Jagger. Who he was also representing. He was representing Mick Jagger, who I, I guess... No. I mean, geez, when you told me that, no. No. And, then, you know, no dis, you know, no ostensive uh, disrespect for Mick Jagger, but no. No, he works... Especially after seeing Harry Dean in this role. Yeah, there... I, I, 
I can only I, I I think I've only seen Mick Jagger in two movies as a fictional character, and one works really really well, which is performance. Sure. And the other movie, which I think is an Free Jack, which I believe is Emilio Estevez sci-fi action movie from the nineties. Yeah, I think so. With Mick Jagger, that's and, right. And he does not. He's the his role and performance is is great because it's basically himself. Sure, and uh, he's and he's terrific in it. Because I think it's he's, not that he can't act. You know. Well, I think that he can't act. <laughs> I think that he can only play Mick Jagger, which is why I think it works in performance, because okay. he's kind of playing a version of himself. Okay. I think he's very, very good at being Mick Jagger, but like I said, from seeing his other work, and the only one that really sticks out in my mind is Free Jack. I know he's been in other movies. And he did do, he has done theater. I know he's been in at least one or two plays. Okay. I do know that. So yeah. maybe I'm un, un, unfairly criticizing Mick Jagger's acting talent, but I can't see. I think that this movie, despite being, I mean, this was one of the first leading roles for Emilio Estevez. Harry Dean Stanton was already established. But more so as a character actor, not really as the lead of a movie. Okay. And he he gets top billing in this. Does he? Yeah, he he's top over Emilio over Emilio Estevez okay. because I, I mean a couple years down the road I think it would have been swapped. Right. But in 1983, 84 was when we kind of um, is pre Breakfast Club. Right. So pre Saint Elmo's Fire. Yeah. So this was before Emilio before Estevez. All the Brat Pack stuff. Yeah. And I also think it's very interesting to note that um, around this same time, um, and well, this this is going to be a brief detour with Charlie Sheen, but it is relevant to this movie uh, because they are half brothers. Mm-hmm. I think that their their father Martin it's, it's Sheen, the Sheen family, yeah, the Sheen Estevez family. Um, so around this time, uh, Penelope Spheris. Uh, probably best known for directing the the movie Wayne's World, but she started in the late seventies, early eighties, doing documentaries. And one of the one that she's best well known for is called the Decline of Western Civilization, which I believe came out in eighty around the same time as this. Um, but I want to see that. It's excellent, and I've heard of it. It's a I'm great, aware of it. But one, and she followed up the Decline of Western Civilization with. A movie called Suburbia, mm-hmm. which is a very punk movie that actually features Flea, the bassist from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, mm. probably the best well-known person in that movie. But after Suburbia, she did a movie about uh, teenage serial killers called The Boys Next Door, which is a mm. very kind of... And I get, again, this is kind of a punk rock aesthetic kind of like... Okay. You know, Decline know. of Western Civilization, Suburbia, then The Boys Next Door, which starred Charlie Sheen, which again was before. Oh, 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 and the guy from Greece too. Yes, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that right. that's why it's similar. They they both kind of had their start with Maxwell Caulfield. Yes, yeah. They both both Emilio Estevez and Charlie Sheen kind of had their start in the early '80s with kind of punk based mm-hmm. movements. I mm-hmm. just think that's kind of an interesting, you know note about this whole kind of uh, evolution of f- punk rock seeping into the mainstream. Yeah, and I mean, my my impression is that the punk scene um, 
didn't last very like the the real punk scene didn't last very long pretty much by the mid 80s it was kind of on its way out right but hollywood was jumping on it for uh, probably because of repo man and maybe the because the of decline the, the of western female director that year. Yeah. yeah exactly the decline of western civilization mm-hmm. was very popular and um but i mean we're talking i know you know, uh, in London and New York, it was the late 70s. I don't know about L.A. so much, the punk scene, but it seems alive and well uh, during Repo Man, you know? It was, okay. yeah. Uh, but it, w- it was cut. It's interesting that the choice of title for the decline of the Western civilization was also kind of a hint at the decline of what I would say is the original punk movement. Mm. Um, interesting. It kind of, I think... It, it lived on with certain bands. Uh, I would say most notably, probably the Ramones. Yeah. As far well, as carrying and, that torch, because and by Iggy th- Pop is still, I think, performing. Yeah, but we have. I, I think what happened with the '90s, and I, you could say Nirvana and Green Day. We kind of got the, the what they call pop punk. Well, when, would you would you really call? Nirvana that. I mean, I would call Green Day that, definitely. I wouldn't call Nirvana that, no, no. But I think it's kind of like um, Hollywood, yeah, they kind of they're almost kind of like two steps behind like a musical trend. Sure, of course. Yeah. Uh, Now, really quickly, um, wasn't there an alternate uh, or a working title for Repo Man before it was called Repo Man? Weren't you telling me that at some point? Waldo's Hawaiian Holiday. What? No. No. Might be. What? Well, Waldo's Hawaiian Holiday is a graphic novel, which is the sequel to Repo Man. Really? Is... So we, do we we actually find out what happens to these characters after all? You'd have to read Waldo's Hawaiian Holiday to find out. I'm not so sure. That, so... <laughs> Speaking of... So this... that's the graphic novel is the sequel. sequel to Repo Man. Okay. It's called Waldo's Hawaiian Holiday. And I, I, I from what I understand, like, I haven't it, read it. Like, all I think of is like, where's Waldo? When that's I, what I think too. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm trying to think who's the Waldo and, from and, Repo Man. And, and what's that... Uh, Andrew McCarthy, Jason, Jason, what's his name? That you know, the Bernie at the beach with the dead weekend guy. of Bernies. Weekend of Bernies. It makes me think of that too. Oh, that's a because they go to the tropics with that corpse. Well, I think, I think. that that's Weekend of Bernies too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, <laughs> back to basics. Um, but there is a, a, a 2009 spiritual successor called Repo Chick. Have you seen it? I haven't. Um, this goes Is that back like Tank to... Girl or something. See, Tank... that's the thing that that I got Repo Man, originally before seeing Repo Man. I got Repo Man and Mad Max like mixed up. I thought for some reason that Repo Man was a post-apocalyptic, and there are elements of that in it, mm. but it's not at all like Mad Max. Really. No, Mad Max is 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 full out post-apocalyptic. And that's, and that's isn't that Australia anyway? It is. It's the outback of Australia. Yes, See, it this is. is and that's not on my radar either. I need to. We're going to watch that at some. point. We're going to definitely cover the first Mad Max. So um, Repo Chick, Repo Chick. But this is one of the things that uh, I guess Alex Cox, for all intents and purposes, is basically blacklisted from Hollywood. Uh, Why? Because of the flops that he made afterwards. Yeah, and I guess uh, I'm not really sure for, 
exactly the reasons. He doesn't, obviously, not something that he wants to talk about. If he's but, into conspiracies, that could be reason enough. Well, <laughs> I know that. <laughs> I can tell you that much. I, I, I kind of think that if, if Hollywood, if, if, you're, if you're coming off two very successful um, lower budget movies, you're coming off of Repo Man, you're coming off of Sid and Nancy. Which again, we're we're not going to talk about Sid and Nancy now because we're going to have a whole episode about it. I don't but like that. I actually don't like that movie. Maybe I'll like it again. Maybe I'll like it if I watch it again. It's it. It's not an it's easy a, movie to like. She, because, her. Oh, Nancy is terrible. Oof. But again, we're not going to talk about that because no. we're gonna, we will That's eventually right. get to That's right. to Sid and Nancy. But once you're, and then to be offered something like RoboCop and The Running Man. And you got to whatever you think about the Running Man, you got to think that Arnold Schwarzenegger was at the the height of his popularity in the late eighties. If you're offered an Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle, you jump on that, regardless. But I I think to his credit, sticking to his punk rock roots, yeah, he goes to make something like Straight to Hell Returns, which was kind of it was originally going to be kind of a punk documentary about punk groups on the road. Um, what did it turn into? I'm not sure because I haven't seen it. But okay. From, from what I've heard, it's terrible. Yeah. It's um, but it, basically everything that he's done since has been uh, what a micro feature, which mean micro refers to the budget. It's basically a lot of crowdfunded Kickstarter type movies. Well, bless um, his heart. <laughs> but since 2012, he's been teaching screenwriting and film production at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and uh, he seems happy. He seems uh, to be very cheerful uh, on the on the um, on all the bonus features and the commentary for Repo Man. I yeah. think he's vi- he's okay something- with where he's at in life. Yeah. Uh, well, with the exception of one part of his life, which I. I'm not sure if we should get into this now or wait until the Fear and Loathing episode to talk about... He was going to do that? Yeah. And Terry Gilliam did it instead? Yeah. And it's a big regret of his? Well, no. I'm not sure. But my issue is with the whole lawsuit. I think we talked about this off mics once. The issue with the lawsuit. Was there a lawsuit? Yeah. We'll talk about. Well, you know what? We'll save this for the the fear and loathing episode. I'll I'll fill you in because it, it's a very interesting story. But I have my issues with Alex Cox on his stance for that. But that's that was supposed to be his kind of comeback to Hollywood. Okay. And it didn't work out. Okay. And it went to Terry Gilliam, and um, yeah, we have a we have a couple episodes coming up on the show that are basically. Uh, Unfilmable books turned into amazing movies. We're gonna have to shorten that title for these episodes, but we have a, we have a bunch of them coming up. Fear and Loathing is one of them. Altered States is one of them. Uh, that was a book. Yeah. Okay. And Naked Lunch, of course, mm-hmm. uh, was gonna be one of them. Uh, I want to throw in the hours, but I don't feel like it's a legitimate cult movie. Uh, well, <laughs> we could talk about that. All right. But anyway, uh, yeah. So Alex Cox. He seems to be kind of happy with what he's doing, uh, but like his movies, just I haven't heard the best things about them, and I I kind of, unfortunately that this seems that this happened to me with the Palma, and I don't want this to happen with Alex Cox, is that I so love 
early De Palma movies that when I watch later De Palma, anything kind of from mid-95, 96 to now, I, it, like, I, I sit there going, like, what happened to you, man? Well, and it I, seems, I mean, let's not talk about this too much. Okay. Um, yeah, because I, I just want to say it seems like there were other cooks in the kitchen with De Palma later in his career. Sure. That might have straight-jacketed him creatively. Because uh, when I talk about De Palma, I talk about his basically like 10 to 20-minute sequences that he has like right. storyboarded. So that it, it's like they took that away from him. Uh, but anyway, back to Repo Alex Man. Cox. Right. Uh, yeah, and I want to I bring up, in this booklet with um, the Criterion Collection, the cover has uh, Estevez wearing what looks like um, uh, some, like a virtual reality, um, I, you know, Yeah, it does. Glasses. It looks like a VR headset. There you go. Yeah. There you go. That is the front of the car, probably the, the, the Malibu yep. Chevy. Yep. Okay. And he's saying intense. Yeah. Of course. Uh, so that's, that's just a weird, that's, I mean, it's almost like he's playing a virtual reality game with this. It is. It's, you know? It's all, it's almost like a, it, and I want to say talked about how the, there, it is kind of like an alternate universe that Repo Man is taking place in. Yeah. Go ahead. What were you going to say? I interrupted. It, no, it almost feels like a video game movie not based on a video game. Yeah. It, <laughs> see, it's not. It's no. not. It's, it's its own thing. I don't think to myself, oh, this is like a video game when I'm watching it. No. I it, don't. It, it, I don't. And it, it, it's interesting to me that The Warriors was eventually turned into a video game like 20 to 25 years after it was released, but it has the same... It it almost is it because it's conducive to it. It is conducive to it, and I just think the pacing is kind of like a there's there's nothing the, the randomness se- of of it, which yeah. is often the case with a video video game. game right? You choose you know where you're go- what's happening next. Right. Not it's almost knowing what's going to happen after that. Yes, that's yeah. it. You put into words exactly yeah. what I'm thinking. Like it's okay. just kind of like it. Just the way that it flows. It's kind of like. Like a video game level, like one one level is underwater, one level's in a sewer, one mm-hmm. level's here. It's it's got the same kind of feel to it, mm-hmm. but it's not. Like I said, this thing is such a unique beast yeah. that could only have happened with the perfect set of circumstances. We we had someone willing to fund this vision, and basically say, "I believe in this vision," and you know, Universal got their hands on it. Yeah. Yeah, I also want to say I like that we're talking about Repo Man and uh, and the Warriors kind of at the same time. Both of those are very much urban urban movies, um, and I love it because I basically am an urban creature, um, for better or for worse. Um, it's it's become difficult for me to be an urban cre- creature as I've gotten older, but. I mean, I lived in New York City for over 20 years, and I would just, it was my playground. I would just kind of, like, bop around. Where's a neighborhood? Where's a street that I haven't been to before? So when I see movies like this, I can viscerally relate to it. Yeah. You know, it really it's kind of like to me. Yeah. You know, it's an adventure. Warriors is definitely an adventure, and certainly Repo Man is in its own Right. Um, yeah. Urban adventure. 
Perfect. There you go. And they both have elements of humor. Obviously, Repo Man is a, a, a lot more intentionally humorous. And yeah, I, I I would say also it's just it's endlessly quotable. Oh well, that the script itself. I mean, just this. Yeah, all the dialogue, all it? the lines, the pernicious nonsense, pernicious <laughs> nonsense from our scientists, from our neutron, our n- <laughs> neutron neutron bomb Scientist. creator, right? <laughs> Who is heavy. He's gotten his fix of radiation driving oh, that car around. It's yeah. just, his days are numbered. Yeah, there's Poor actually guy. one of the with outtakes. One, with one lens in his uh, sunglasses. So there is kind of this all-seeing eye symbolism going on. Right, With yeah. his one eye exposed from those sunglasses. Interesting. And there's so much... And there's... there's um. There's so much social commentary, and I don't know how intentional it was. Um... Especially the scene where, where Otto's friend, who out the course of this movie had just gotten out of jail, has sex with Otto's girlfriend, so they're not friends anymore. But he just shows up to do crimes, so to speak. He shows up, like at at the lick. Well, he show, it turns out he's robbing the liquor store as the uh, as Otto goes in at it, one scene, and it turns into a shootout. It turns in, and then it turns into a shootout later on, and then he's lying on the ground dying. And he's blaming society. I know, and he, and, he, and he does come off. I mean, it, it's supposed to be like this. Yeah, it, it's it comes very, off as just like a, a bratty white kid, uh, you know. It comes off as like probably, probably from money as yeah, well. Yeah, your deathbed like whining. You no, know, your deathbed confession to like get into heaven. Like you're certain. Ah! You're certain. <laughs> but that's not really even a confession. That's just a cop out. <laughs> it is a cop out. And he says, you know, he goes, I just. I blame society. <laughs> and, and Otto's response, Emilio Estevez's response is brilliant. He says, no, you're just a white suburban punk like me. Oh, he says that. He does say that. There you go. There you have it. There you have it. Now, now I want to mention also in that scene, uh, Alex Cox had the shootout. He had the shootout happen with a bunch of boxes of ketchup bottles around. Right. So a lot of those ketchup bottles get blown up. And so you don't know if it's blood or ketchup. And apparently that was his way of dodging uh, sensors or yeah. a rating from it being too gory. Yeah. Because it's like, is it blood or ketchup? Well, no, that's ketchup. You can't really give slap. I mean, what? what this was rated R anyway, wasn't it? Yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't know. I think this was at the... But hu- that's funny. I love that. No, it works out great, but this was um this was at the height of the MPAA being real real harsh on violence. And that that's mostly because this was around the time where every year you'd had a new Friday the 13th movie. You had a new Nightmare on Elm Street movie. They were showing you so like slashers. Yeah. I mean those were, you know, that but, was the big thing in the early 80s. But any movie that's kind of like going to be, you know, and this is a violent movie. It's not overly gory, but you can't deny that this movie is is violent. We have a couple violent shootouts. Yeah. And most of, actually, I would say. It doesn't, no, I, mean, I don't know. It yeah. You know, I, I don't think to, yeah. It doesn't bother me, but I could, see, but this was at the time when the MPAA. It, it's not were, Tarantino. No, but again, this was the the, the like the MPAA goes through these weird phases, phases where like yeah, all yeah, of a yeah. sudden, yeah, like fickle, yeah. yeah. So like this was at the height of 
it's a gonna be a violent R movie. Like you gotta be careful about the blood. Yeah. And and we we can blame all the slasher movies, but that's just the way that the MPA is. So I, I mean, but he, I, he kept his cool. He kept his punk aesthetic going, and he's just like the I, fine. The fine. idea to have the ketchup bottles, right? I mean, that's genius. It is. Yeah. Just like I mean, oh, talk about finding another way around it. And like the whole, and I, I talk about David Lynch saying, you know, it is better when you've got certain constraints because then you figure out another way around it. Yeah, and so it, and it makes it better. It does. Times. It, and there's a reason why this movie, like the the, the Criterion, is known for like being like the prestigious uh, movie. Uh, distributor or just like slash archive vault archive vault of great movies but there's a reason that on this criterion edition they include the tv version is because like you said that he he was like okay i get it they're going to they're going to edit the hell out of my movie and put in all this weird dialogue like if he got the chance to do the tv version he's like okay i'll throw in some of the scenes that i cut from the theatrical and okay, I can't say motherfucker. So what's funny? Melon farmer. Okay. <laughs> so instead so, of that, they, once again in the Warriors, there's a whole different uh, version of it that was meant for TV as well, with added scenes that were originally cut. Yeah, and probably dubbed in. You know, not as funny. Yeah, dubbed in cussing. But or he just cussing. It's kind of like it's going to happen regardless. He kind of he kind of recognized. Okay, this is part of the machine that I wanted to. You know, like I want I. I want to be a filmmaker. I want to make movies. I want to be able to make a living doing movies. Okay, I got to play the game, but if I'm going to play the game, I'm going to play by my rules. Right, and he got away with it. Yeah. Uh, which is probably... They let him. Which, uh, at some point, I will... Look, I'm not so much interested in his most recent movies. What I am interested in is seeing... What is this ridiculous movie? Straight to Hell Returns. I kind of want to just see what this movie was that was the... There was this one and another movie, which I think is like an acid western movie, that were kind of like the nails in the coffin for him. Acid western? What is an acid western? You'd have to... uh, uh, (laughs) Jim Jarmusch, Dead Man. Okay, sure. I, I that's guess. the only thing off the top of my head that I, w- w- when I think acid western. Okay, I love that uh, movie. It's great. Yeah, the uh, Jim Jarmusch is another another person we're going to be covering um, here on the Cold Film Companion podcast. Again, we're 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 against the clock. We try not to go longer than the movies we're covering, so we're going to actually have to start wrapping this up. That's fine. I I it, this went by quickly. I was Just like I was Rebo. I was a little nervous. I was Where like, well, because. Because I was so reserved to um, really dig into this movie. Like, uh, it's just... So I was going to ask you a lot of questions. Okay. And I wanted you to kind of do a lot of talking. But we didn't so. need that. The, because no. Because, like I said, this movie's kind of right. like the gift that keeps on giving. Yep. Just like, you think of one scene and all of a sudden, like, all these thoughts rush to your head. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is the sign of just, like, a brilliant movie. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, so we could keep on going. All of these could, characters are worth talking about individually. We didn't oh, talk about the girl who's part of the uh, the the renegade friend group, who's she, also the receptionist who kicks ass. No, 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 oh. no. She's fun. I'm talking about the other girl who's always snorting blow, and she licks she licks the a- female oh, agent's glove. Right. She's awesome. Uh, she's yeah. cool. <laughs> this yeah. movie's just cool. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, like yeah. this movie, it, it's punk rock. If like, it's just a 
a fucking cool movie. Yeah. Like, you can't categorize this movie. There's just... I mean, it's one of those things that's kind of like... Like you said with your friend. Once you know Repo Man, it's kind of like... like, like it's like an inside joke. Oh, and yeah. And all of a sudden, you know all these other inside jokes. He was rattling off one line after another after another. This guy's in his 60s. Right. Okay. I, lo- I mean, it was off. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things that it's kinda like it's kinda like the secret knock to get into like the, <laughs> like the after hours party. It's like you know Repo Man? Don't you, give you me roll a line. off a couple lines. Yeah. Give me a couple lines and you're in. Yeah. Let's go let's go eat sushi and not pay. <laughs> and it's just like it's one of those movies. Um but thank you so much for joining us on this um on fr- the- I had a friend in LA who would who used to steal sushi from the grocery stores? So I, you know, once again, there's another connection that you know. Uh, this movie, it, it's it's for an LA punk like this is the ult- penultimate LA punk movie made by a British filmmaker, which is just astonishing. An L- a British filmmaker about the LA punk scene. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that there's some bridging of gaps there, but you know, even he, geographically speaking. But you know how what, much of the punk scene was he involved with in London beforehand? I wonder. Well, I'm sure that's actually something we'll probably get into when we do Sid and Nancy. Oh, sure. So, okay. um, to be continued. I kind of, uh, yeah. I think uh, this this was heralded one of the best reviews that I've seen. This movie got very very good reviews, by the way. When it came out, yes. Okay, it, it, I'm it, glad. It just kind of didn't. I'm glad critics got it. Critics got... You know who got it? Roger Ebert got it. Good. He loved it. Good. Um, I'm glad to hear that. He said that he was coming off... Uh, I don't know if he was at a film festival, but he just said... Th- this was one of the movies, like, he had, a, like, a weekend where he just kind of had to... Uh, he reviewed a bunch of movies that were coming out, and he just said they were just so derivative and so unoriginal, and there was nothing to it. And then he just said, like, Repo Man. Yeah. Just I mean, say what, <laughs> whatever me. you say, whatever you think about Roger Ebert or his criticism, but like he was just like, it's a fresh, a fresh air, Certainly. it's something original. And I could see at the time, there's nothing like this movie. No, um, there's nothing like it now. Uh, I don't think you could replicate it if you tried. No, and it, nor it's, should you. It's funny. It's funny. <laughs> it's funny when we were we actually for the listener. We actually attempted to do this podcast before, and uh, we couldn't for various reasons. So instead, Chris showed me um, what's it called? the Kurt Russell movie from nineteen eighty about the used, used cars. It's called Used Cars about a used car salesman, uh, and there, there, that movie in and of itself is kind of a hoot and a holler and. And oh, a very original in its own way as well. Very that's offbeat. That's one we're going to be covering. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it's you know two car movies like that w- within a few years. Yeah. And I was able to kind of make connections even between these two movies, even though they're very different. Right. And it's if I, uh, not that we'll we'll end on this. This is a very '80s movie, but it's not. It's a very '80s punk movie, yeah. which I love because a lot of times when people say, oh, it's an 80s movie, it's a lot of new wave music, it's kind of like yeah. big hair, a yeah. lot of... There is there is neon in this movie. Yeah. Um, but like, There is? The car at the end. I guess. Green. I guess. Mm, I sure, guess. sure. But I mean, you don't see neon signs. You really don't see... No, you don't see them. And I, I've always talked about how there's a difference between 1983 and 1984. I feel like in 1984, 
things became really 80s. Synthesizers, the hair, the neon, all of that. Uh, So so this, this is right in that cusp. Right there. Filmed in 83, released in 84. And it l- looks like it's filmed in 83. I think if it was filmed in 84, you might have seen more neon in L.A. Mm. And I, I, I also think that, like I said, the, the, the punk scene was kind of, it was it was on its decline. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, uh, that whole new, all of that... All of that other stuff was, was pushing in, like was, Bri- yeah. Brian Adams and... Flock of Seagulls. Yep, yep, yep. Synthesizers. Synthesizers. I remember hating synthesizers back in the 80s. Now I now I have a nostalgia And this for was it. also on the... Drum machines. Ooh, oh, yeah. Synths and drum machines was basically the soundtrack of the 80s. And mm-hmm. This was also around the time that MTV was debuting. MTV came out 83, yeah. 84? Yeah, yeah. At least on a... On a wide level, right. they did it in small cities first before releasing it mm. uh, nationally. Yeah, this movie just like it opens up. It, it, I mean, you could have hours of conversation just like, yeah, from yeah. So it's it's movie. it's actually for all intents and purposes ostensibly a, a pre MTV movie. Yeah, a pre MTV punk music movie. I love it. I love it, I love it, I love it. I and love I it. think Andrew summed it up best, so we're going to sign off, and we're going to prepare for our next episode. But please join our conversations at the Cult Film Companion Facebook group. Hit us up on Twitter, at Cult Film Comp. We are on Instagram, Cult Film Companion. We're on Acast. Currently, we're going to be switching uh, website platforms uh, in the near future to get... Um, more accessible for you, the listener, to um, have access to our show. And again, we do this show for you. We we could do this show for ourselves, um, but we just we enjoy knowing that other people are going to get kick out of our discussions on these these crazy little movies. And like I said, these are movies that are off under and ahead of the radar. And this movie most definitely was ahead of the radar. Um, this movie is. 80s punk pre-MTV movie like Andrew put it and uh, we thank you all for for joining us and uh, we'll talk to you again real soon. Good night. Good night.